so I walked in. It was like 10.30 in the morning. Steph's sitting on the couch. Um, she's feeding Thomas. And it's sitting there. She looks over at me. She said, what are you doing? And I said, well, how'd it go? How'd the talk go? And I said, well, I don't think it went as well as I'd hoped. That Jerry told me to come over and talk to you or bring back a box with my stuff in it. And she set the baby down and walked across the house. I was like, where are you going? She goes, I'm going to get your box. And I was like, oh my God, I love this woman. From Fiore Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Tom Durzapolsky, co-founder and president of Bow Stern, an award-winning integrated communications firm. Tom is a father of three, proud grandfather, and husband to Stephanie Durzapolsky, the chief communications officer at Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare. He was named Leadership Tallahassee's Leader of the Year in 2019 and was one of the recipients of the Tallahassee Democrats' 2018 Person of the Year, along with Stephanie and others, for his tireless volunteer work in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael in Bluntstown and surrounding areas. The Navy veteran believes in family, hard work, and that living out his faith is the best way to make a lasting impact. We started by talking about how he would describe himself today. I, I think I would want people to know how much I love my family and that uh, everything else I do is just to uh, improve that experience with them or to provide for them. But they would disappoint me if I got to the end of my life or if someone was talking about me and they said I was the hardest worker they've ever met or uh, man, he spends all his time at work. So if they associate me with uh, loving my family and, and caring for my community, then I'd be perfectly happy with that. So I know you were born in Tallahassee, but you actually grew up in Largo, right in Pinellas County. So what, um, how old were you when you moved and why did your family go down there? Yeah, I was born right here at TMH and uh, my dad built radio stations and he was called in to get them licensed and then he would find the buildings and hire. And, and so we left Tallahassee and actually went to West Virginia for a year or two then to okay. Lexington, Kentucky for a year or two. And uh, we were definitely Florida people. So those were very cold winters. And uh, my dad got a job down in the Tampa yeah. Bay area. And we actually ended up growing up over in uh, Seminole. Went to Seminole High School right there in Pinellas County, right by Largo. And, uh, and so that's what took us down there somewhere around the middle school years. So tell me what family life was like for you, your parents, siblings, kind of what was your situation growing up? I grew up with, um, I have a, a brother and two sisters and in the chain of command, I'm the, the second oldest. So I have a, a sister who's older than me and then a brother and a, a sister younger than I. And um, our, our family life was very normal. Dad worked uh, building radio stations, very demanding life, long hours, uh, and was also a professor at St. Pete College. He has a real passion for teaching. And uh, so did that in the evenings. And 
my mom took care of us. And then when dad got home, she would often go and wait tables. And so we, you know, I didn't grow up by any stretch of the imagination wealthy, but uh, my parents loved us and invested in the things that were important. Uh, we didn't take the big exotic vacations, uh, but they created time and space together that I think uh, went a long ways uh, in our character development, our work ethic. My brothers and sisters um, are good people. They love one another. They care for their communities. And I, I think they, they got something right that might not have given us the new car when we turned 16 or the brand name jeans, but what they did give us was uh, the knowledge of how to go. First of all, it was important, but then if something was important that we wanted, how to go get it. Did you like high school? Were you involved in stuff? Were those good years for you? Oh, Lord, I was such a misfit. I, I'm serious. <laughs> I I owe my parents a tremendous apology and will be forever in their debt, but I got suspended, I think, every semester of high school. I had... <laughs> what were either, you doing? I was... I, now, let me be clear. I'd, uh, I, I never got into drugs or was a troublemaker like that, but I... Um, I would skip school and go surfing or sailing and we would get caught. Uh, I had a short fuse. Um, I went to between kindergarten and 12th grade with the way we moved around my dad's work. I think I went to 13. I lived in 13 different homes, went to nine or 10 different schools. And when you're the new redhead in the school, you get picked on. And I learned in like fourth grade that as soon as you got picked on, if you just punch the guy in the nose, they stop picking on you. My dad and mom were so patient and graceful uh, and and they disciplined me when I was out of line, but it never hurt other people. We never vandalized any property or got in and, you know, arrested or anything like that. But, oh gosh, my grades struggled. I, I was more into having a good time than, than academics. That's for sure. <laughs> Which Did is you... crazy, right? I mean, talking yeah. about how the, they instilled discipline and how we work so hard, but I honestly just look back and I think the structure of high school, I'm sure have ADD. I'm, I don't, I think they just called it the bad hyper kid when I was in kindergarten. They didn't bother figuring <laughs> right. out what was going on. But I, yeah. um, when I got to college, when I joined the military and then I got to college, um, the military instilled some discipline and then college was perfect for me. Have a class in the morning and a two or three hour break and go study in another course and not being strapped to a desk like you are in a typical high school where you show up at seven thirty and you're in a seat, in a seat, in a seat. Um, that never worked for me, and I don't do it today. I get up and walk around my office all the time on conference calls. I stand, I have a standing desk, and I, you know, I'm I'm working at home now. But today I'll work in three different rooms, probably. Uh, just, right, just the way I function. Did you do any activities in high school, with like sports or music or clubs or anything? Yeah, I did. I um. I played uh, football through my freshman year and into my sophomore, and then I just never – I was 140 pounds soaking wet and slow and, you know, not tall enough to be quarterback anymore. Yeah, it's, it's not a good um, combination. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, but then I got into uh, – wrestled for a while. But my two sports in high school, and this is going to be a shocker, uh, one was boxing and the second uh, was cross country. And uh, my love for running has continued to this day. I, um, I think it's an incredibly healthy lifestyle – the people who run uh, are often living healthy. You know, they have the discipline right. in their life to get up and go before it's hot. It's hard to wake up. And uh, so I like surrounding myself with folks who are disciplined and kind of like better than me, right? That 
I, I want to run that fast. I want to get into miles. And uh, so then that transitioned right. into doing triathlons. And I completed my first half Ironman last fall. And uh, wow. then I completely fell off the wagon and I started running like April 1st again. Uh, <laughs> so I had this, I'm either all in or all out, as my wife says. Right. Like, either getting ready for an Ironman so, or doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, you can, you know, there is, there is something in between. If you just want to run a little bit, that's probably okay. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I get it. So I'm also fascinated by the fact that your high school had a boxing program. I'm not sure I've heard of that before. Well, it was actually not through the high school, but through the, um, like, there's this police officers association. And uh, the gym was uh, in a part of town where they were trying to make sure that kids had someplace to go and uh, to, to keep themselves busy and not get in trouble and channel some of that energy. Uh, and there was a kid in my class, uh, probably my sophomore, junior year, I think, uh, who was a Golden Glove champion. And uh, he was a heavyweight. And he said, man, you got to come out and try this. And I was nervous as could be to go. But uh, I got in there and I lo- I really loved the workout. Um, that the, they're, the way boxers work out is, you know, pretty heavy cardio. And then hitting stuff was, uh, was good when you're a young man and your testosterone is just getting turned on. Um, and then when I got in the ring and found out that I'd, was okay at it. I, I really enjoyed it. It was it was really good to go just toe to toe against someone else, and it, it mattered greatly how hard you prepared, and it was evident um, when you did and when you didn't. There were there were no excuses. Right? Did you do any of the Rocky comeback exercises or <laughs> drills? <laughs> you get From any of the movies, any one through four, any of those? No, I didn't. The pulling, but, uh, the, pulling the I cart didn't... through the snow or the pull-ups in the barn well, they, or any they, of that stuff you know the uh, old warehouse we worked out in uh was in kind of an old abandoned industrial kind of building uh it it had a lot of that kind of stuff in it so it was a dirty dark musky place and uh they we had a lot of uh really good um hispanic boxers and uh they were fast hands, uh, worked hard. My coach didn't speak English, uh, but he worked with me and, uh, gave me people that were difficult to beat. And I think that getting whooped, you know, knowing that you could take a couple shots on the chin, uh, build your confidence a little bit, I guess. So after you graduated from high school, you, did you go directly into the Navy at that point? (laughs) I did. And it's, you know, I told you I moved around a lot. So I was going to Seminole High School. At the end of my junior year, I went to the Marine Corps recruiter. And those commercials really did a job on me. Those incredible uniforms and, you know, Semper Fi, I'm going to be a Marine. And so I went to Marine recruiter and they sent you off for your testing. And because I was still 17, I needed my dad to sign. And and my dad would not sign for the Marine Corps. He was in Vietnam. And he said, uh, I love the Marines, but the only thing you're going to do there is a a technical job, which I qualified for, but it was like, you know, computers or, you know, communications, radios and some kind of mechanic or whatnot. And, uh, so I I went back to the Marine recruiter and I said, Hey, my dad won't sign. He said, I have to have a a job that I can transfer to civilian life when I get out. And so he stood up and grabbed my wrist and walked me out the front door and around into the Navy recruiter's office. 
And he said, uh, I got a Corman here for you. And I looked at him. And I said, what's a Corman? He goes, it's a medic. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I'm not. I'm no doc. I'm not a, I'm not a medic right. either. You read my scores wrong or plus, I think I'd probably throw up on everybody if they were bleeding me this. <laughs> and he's, and I don't want to be in the Navy. And he said, uh, Navy corpsman serve in the Marine Corps. So all Marine Corps medics are Navy corpsmen. And he said, your dad will sign for this. And when you graduate Corps school, you'll be sent to the Fleet Marine Force, FMF, and you'll be with us. And I said, okay. And I signed up and never spent a single day with the Marines in eight years and four months. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, my plan didn't work out that good. But actually... Once I graduated uh, hospital corps school training, went on to some advanced training and ended up spending my time on the aviation side of the Navy, which was very rewarding. I got to travel all over the world. I do not miss spending a minute with the Marines. I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. They were on ship with us. Uh, if we were in port and I walked into a bar, any corpsman walks in, Doc, get over here. You never buy a beer. They take good care of you. But right. um, I, I don't think I have any regrets there. So after, well, I did want to ask you one more thing. You, I know that you traveled all around the world. I saw Albania, Bosnia, different places. Mm-hmm. Is there any place that really stands out as a as a destination or a location you were at for a while that you really enjoyed? Oh man, I would. I wish I could say something really definitive um, with regard to the military. Now, in civilian life, yes, I've got a place or two. But uh, I think what I enjoy most about my experience exploring the world was growing up in Florida and learning about Florida history and U.S. history. You have this sense that you go to a plantation north of Tallahassee that it's old. But then as a 19-year-old young man, when you're standing, you have your hand against the Colosseum or you're at a pyramid in Egypt or you're at a castle that was built during the Moorish invasions of some century, you really, really understand that we are an infant and that this democracy is a true experiment and that we have not even begun. I mean, when you look at the history in Europe, forget about, you know, Asia. Um, so as a young man, being able to go out and see these incredibly amazing, beautiful people all over the world, every religion, every race, all kinds of food right. and music and smells in the marketplace um, and see some really old stuff. I think it was really important to kind of getting a global perspective on, you know, yeah. where we are as a country, uh, what it's like to treat people that are in our community that are maybe live differently than we do. Uh, that, that is, that's what the world is about. We live differently. We experience things. We share ideas, music, food, culture. And, uh, so that's what I remember most is about is the history and the people everywhere. So after you leave the Navy, you end up in Tallahassee. Oh, right? Man. Was it? Did you? Was there? Was there a lot in between, or did you come straight back to Tallahassee? It was. I was straight back. Okay, and it was the most disruptive, terrible experience. I could not wait to get home, and it was. I'll tell you the month, and I'll tell you the year in a second. But it was August. I had my acceptance letter to Florida State University. Um, it was tough leaving the Navy then because my whole squadron was on deployment. And so they leave a skeleton skeleton crew behind to take care of things. You know, there's 800 in the squadron and leave like 40 of us behind. Because I was getting out, they weren't going to fly me back from the other side of the Pacific halfway through the deployment, so I didn't get to go. Um, And so I 
I packed my stuff and I left my office and a couple of people said bye and I drove through the gates and I looked at the the base just kind of disappear in my rearview mirror with no fanfare. It was it was an interesting experience to have such a profoundly important period of your life in in such an you know blase kind of way. Normally it's quite a yeah. big farewell with your shipmates. Uh, but I drove back to Florida and I just kept my my eyes forward on the horizon where I was going. I didn't look in the rearview mirror anymore and I couldn't wait to get to Florida State. And I, I came in and to the registrar's office and I got my letter and they were all my papers. And uh, after reviewing the transcripts, they found that I did not complete my foreign language. Well, because of the way I went to school in the Navy, um, you know, sometimes on deployment, off, it was put together over time. I wanted to take uh, Spanish back to back. So I might actually learn it. I didn't want to take Spanish one, one year. And then two years later, take Spanish too. And she said, you, if you transfer in as a junior, you've got to have your foreign language. So I had to go to TCC for two semesters. And then because I was on what they called the, um, uh, not a drop program, but I was still technically in the Navy. I'd saved up my vacation days, my leave so that right. I could, you know, come to Florida, start the semester. And so I wasn't really out of the Navy till October. And uh, because of that, um, I went to apply for my GI Bill, which I was counting on. And they said, well, yeah, you can have access to all this money you've earned um, as soon as you're out of the Navy. I'm like, well, I am out. And they said, well, you're, you're technically still in. So within a week of being excited about being home and going to Florida State, I had an immediate financial crisis. I got the news that I'm going to TCC and not FSU. Um, and then I told you to tell the year, uh, about two weeks later, nine 11 happened. So I'm, I'm right at TCC. I'm eating like Cheerios watching the news. And I think that the footage is from yesterday. Cause it was so sunny. I said, Oh man. And it was just one tower that had been hit. And I was like, I just remember thinking about my experience in aviation and about how many things must've went wrong for that to happen. And I didn't even finish that thought. And I'm like, somebody flew that plane into that building. And then I, Mm -hmm. Two or three bites later, I'm watching and I'm hearing it. And then the next plane hits. I go to class. Everyone's standing around the commons at TCC watching the TVs. Um, we go into class. I come out. And this kid, I go back to the commons to see the TV. And there's a kid. He said, yeah, the towers just fell. And I looked at him. I'm like, he's like 18 years old. I'm like, what an idiot. Tower. <laughs> I, I remember thinking. They just don't fall. Right? Yeah. Like, how dumb are you, man? That smoke from the fire, the tower didn't fall. What are you crazy? And then, you know, we all know that story. So right. my transition to civilian life was terrible. All I wanted to do was go back with my shipmates and, and go back in the Navy and be with my men and go kick some butt. And, uh, it went, you know, I was discharged and we had, my squadron did mine sweep. We had these huge helicopters and they weren't deploying immediately anywhere. And they're like, yeah, you know, I had to call in and check in every day until October when I was out. But I just remember thinking I made a huge mistake. I need to go back. And it just wasn't an option. And so all I could do was study and work hard at TCC, which I loved every minute of. That the faculty and the people that run that uh, college are remarkable. That was a very difficult situation. They understood it. I needed an accommodation or two. I took like 18 credits. I didn't know what I was doing. And you know, immediately was in over my head and right. they helped me navigate that without any dings. Very grateful. 
so you were taking classes while you were in the Navy that allowed you to get your, your AA essentially, or what you thought was your AA? Yeah, yeah I did. I, um, I, uh, a lot of your military training, there's some things you do in boot camp with regard to history and, uh, a lot of it is electives, but depending on what your actual job is, you go on for further training. So they looked at my training as a Navy corpsman and colleges give you credits for that. And then while okay. I was stationed, wherever I was stationed, I would take classes at night or on the ship or at the, the local junior college, you know, to, I, I knew I wanted to complete my degree. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do, uh, but I got out with full intentions of you know, with that AA going to Florida State, studying biology, I was going to go back, uh, go to medical school, and then maybe go back in the Navy as a, a flight medic. And I was working overnight at Tallahassee Community Hospital, and uh, I would work all night. Get up, I'd get off at, I'd go in at eleven p.m., get off at seven a.m. I would eat breakfast and go to class, get home from class at three or four, go to bed, and that was my first year or two of college. It was tough work. One morning, I was. Uh, I was in, and so I decided I want to be a specialist and still studying hard. One morning I'm in the cafeteria after work. I'm getting breakfast before I leave to go to school. And uh, I see this, uh, this orthopedic surgeon I knew, and he had his son with him. And his son was like three, and he had no idea what his kid ate. They're in line, and the ladies behind mm. the counter are like, he can't eat spicy sausage. He can't eat that. He'll choke on that. And I remember thinking, he's something's happened. He's been stuck with his kid, like an emergency came up, but he has no idea what to do with his kid. And another thing I really wanted to be in life was a dad and the specialty I was pursuing and the school ahead. And then the work that would certainly, you know, come with that would constantly pull me from the family. So I I called my dad that afternoon and I said, I'm I'm having second thoughts about medical school. And he said, well, how are your grades? I said, they're great. Grades were great. And I said, I just don't know this is what I'm being called to do. And my dad said, I know that. And I said, well, why don't you tell me? And he said, well, you've, you've always been the son that had to figure it out for them. You had to figure it out. My parents are still alive and he's been that kind of sage counsel in my life. So go back to work that night. This guy I'm working with looks at me and says, you should be a PR guy. And I was like, what the hell's a PR guy? And he goes, well, when everyone's panicking, you're cool as a cookie. It doesn't matter what's going on. You just either calm the doctor down who's freaking out on the nurses or the patient who's spazzing out or somebody screaming in pain. He goes, you just have this disposition of calming things down. And that's what PR guys do. There's a plane crash. They stand behind the podium and make people feel better. So I literally Googled PR, looked at Florida State, had a program. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do, but until I figure it out, I'm going to sign up for, for that major because I had to pick. And uh, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the yeah. power of communications. Um, we do a lot of very important campaigns to get people to not kill themselves, like wear your seatbelt in your car or wear a helmet or a life jacket. or um, And we help organizations yeah. move forward. And I find it profoundly rewarding. Um, and it suits my ADD pretty good, too, because all day long I could bounce through six different industries on six different conference calls. Yeah. And my mind's engaged and excited about it. You graduate with your PR degree. And so what happened next? What What's the first job you got out of school? Came out of Florida State. Uh, now, remember, I had been around the world and I love Tallahassee very much. I, I really enjoyed being here. Um, but I, uh, I figured I would go 
back to San Diego or Dallas or Chicago or somewhere bigger and when you're young, quote, more interesting. Um, and so I looked all over, but uh, I also applied locally to a few places. And uh, you probably remember a guy named Jerry Kidd, a kid group that used to be sure. Kid and Driscoll and then Kid Tucker and then went back to the kid group. Well, Jerry Kidd uh, offered me a job. Um, and I started to look at cost of living in, in all those places and family being here. And I've been away for so long anyways, and I wouldn't know anybody if I'm, I mean, I don't have any trouble talking to people, but if I moved to New York or LA or San Diego, I would probably know nobody. Um, and thought maybe I should be here. My grandparents were older and start a career here where the dollar goes farther. And so I started at kid group. Um, and same thing is military and college. I just got in there and work my tail off. And I didn't realize I was doing anything exceptional, but I wake up early. So I would show up at seven and work and work until the work was done, which was whenever that was maybe five, maybe seven, maybe mm-hmm. 10. But I uh, wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. I just thought, man, this is as much work as you could do. You can get more clients. You can make more money. You can further your career. You can, it just seemed very obvious to me that I was going you know, if I wanted to advance, if I wanted to be in a leadership position, then I needed to get a ton of experience right now and get to work. So I just, you know, young single guy, just worked my tail off and uh, quickly advanced in that company. Jerry Kidd was a, a fantastic mentor. I always will be indebted to him because uh, he taught me a lot of important lessons about business and life and our industry. Then sometime later, I, I guess about six or eight years later, I was wanting to either acquire kid group or start my own thing. Sometimes that conversation about acquisition is a tough one and it can go on and on and on for a long right. time. And so uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian and I, I really was at peace and had prayed carefully about my decisions I was making. And so I um, decided it was time to leave. And uh, it, my youngest son, Thomas, was actually born. I was on paternity leave, Steph was on maternity leave and said, you know, I think it's time that I, you know, resign and look at, start my own thing. So I went in to give six months notice, uh, but that's not how the industry works. I had about six hours to get my stuff and uh, my mother-in-law had a stroke uh, because I had a newborn Mm -hmm. and I was vice president of this company and I had a plan and. I, I, again, I will say it many times how much I respect Jerry, Jerry uh, but he had his way of doing things and he needed to be at peace with his decisions. But he said, you go home to Steph, talk to her and come back and uh, let's get to work and we'll talk about that acquisition uh, or get a box and bring all your stuff back. But you can't have it both ways. He thought that by resigning and giving six months notice, I was trying to have it both ways. I thought I was being professional. Yeah. And uh, so I walked in, it was like 10 30 in the morning, Steph's sitting on the couch. Um, she's feeding Thomas and it's sitting there. She looks over at me and she said, What are you doing? And I said, well, so yeah, how'd it go? How'd the talk go? And I said, Well, I don't think it went as well as I'd hoped. That Jerry told me to come home and talk to you or bring back a box with my stuff in it. And she set the baby down and walked across the house. And I was like, Where are you going? She goes, I'm going to get your box. And I was like, Oh my mm-hmm. God, I love this woman. Because I was sure she would say, well, maybe the responsible thing to do right now. But she knew the process I went through to make that decision and that I was determined. Um, 
And here's the thing. I'm not, I'll do anything. If kid, if kid group, if Bass Stern were to fail someday, I will do anything. I will, I'm not afraid of work anywhere. And so I've washed dishes in the back of a restaurant. I've cut lawns. I've been a medic. And so if life throws me a different curveball and this doesn't work out for me, uh, it's not a fearful endeavor. You know, it's not something I'm worried about. But 10 years later, Bow Stern is about 25 people strong. And I don't think we have uh, I don't think we're going to be in trouble anytime yeah. soon. No, I think you made a good decision. It seems to have worked out pretty well so far. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. Um, so let's get back to that, the origins of Bow Stern. Yeah, I didn't. I knew you left kid, but I didn't. I didn't know under those circumstances, which yeah. definitely. It sometimes we need a little push, right? Like a little unexpected, you know, push out of the nest. Even yeah. though that was your plan, it certainly wasn't that suddenly. So yeah. you had to make things happen faster than you thought. Well, Stephanie, I've always been very conservative financially, so I had knowing that I was going to at some point need to start a company. I'd put six months of reserves, core expenses, rent, just the basics. We're not talking about anything fancy, but away. Right. And it took a couple of years to do that. But uh, I knew I had six months to figure out how to get a client and make money. Uh, and I knew I could do it because I'd been doing it. Um, right. Well, Dave Ramsey would have been proud of you for doing that. Yeah. For sure. Well, and you know, to this day, we operate debt-free. We uh, are very... Yeah. adamant about being able to make decisions for our clients and about whom we work with. I have a ton of respect for my business partner. Her name is Kelly Robertson. Nobody knows about her. She's the real, real legitimate brains behind the operation. And uh, she had worked with me at Kid Group and quit a, a few months before I did. And I go on paternity leave. She gets word that I quit and, uh, and reaches out and said, are you bored yet? Because she knows me. And uh, I said, man, right. I'm so bored. She goes, let's meet for a drink. And uh, we met at the corner pocket on Appalachian Parkway. And I ordered some chicken wings and she ordered a, uh, I remember this because we. it's a profound moment, but she had Bud Light. I ordered a, little, a Jim Beam and Diet Coke. And we we're talking about the type of company we would want to build. And she knew what I was going to do. And, uh, and right. I said, man, I would love to do this with you. And we share a lot of the same values. Uh, but we have very different skill sets. Uh, she she has no trouble with ADD. She's laser focused and has the opportunity to organize and uh, get the team all working in the same direction with a high level of accountability. And I have all the stuff she doesn't and she has all the stuff I don't. I mean, it's like the perfect balance of, of team here. So we sat there and uh, decided we'd start Val Stern together and started sketching out names of a company. And I really like that all the big firms like Fiori Communications has the principal's name in it. And if you go to Saatchi and Saatchi, Hill and Knowlton, I mean, McKinney, like, but I'm Durzapolsky. This is like, this is not going to work. You know, <laughs> the Durzapolsky Robertson group is like dead on, dead on. Yeah. Go. That so, is a mouthful. I'll give you that. Yeah. yeah it's brutal. So anyways, long story short, uh, we came up with some names uh, sitting at the corner pocket and there were some guys there that they had gotten along and people started to get off work and these old guys came in and were sitting there and we had a few names picked out and we uh, ran them by strangers at a bar and they all said, wow, Bowster, that sounds cool. I said, yeah, it's cool. And what I do know about branding is um, A, how to do it, but then also that 
you know, we didn't have the words Google or Yahoo or Zoom in our life, right? Right. They're profoundly important. They mean a great deal. We have uh, feelings associated with them. So I said, you know what? Um, I'm going to create this legendary tale of two guys named Bow and Stern. They're the last names. And uh, we'll build a brand around the things I love. Ernest Hemingway, sailing the ocean. Um, and I came up with a, our logo as a nautical flag. It's the Kilo flag. If you ever see the Bow right. Stern logo, and it means desire to communicate. And I was like, this is all perfect. Let's just, we didn't, uh, we didn't belabor it. And we didn't want to be cute. You know, we didn't want to, some of the names, if you come to my office someday, I'll show you hanging in our conference room or I wrote on a napkin. I just kind of was doodling and taking notes throughout that meeting. And I, I remember going home and putting it in a safe place. So I, if I was successful someday, I could find that, but it was so safe. I, I lost it. I couldn't find it. And then, uh, I moved it. I was moving and, uh, going through some stuff a few years ago and it fell out of a book. And I was like, there it is. So at it framed, it's in the office. Now. That's great. But yeah, that's how we started. And Kelly and I are both from the uh, a traditional PR background and we didn't want Balstrom to be labeled as a PR firm. And we love public relations work. We've got a great division that does that, but I understood the value of integrated marketing before they were teaching about it at Florida state. And it's kind of like the kicking around this term. I realized that all my excellent right. PR campaigns had strong web, strong social, strong design graphics, and I said, I want to have the best in class in every division. So we just very carefully and methodically went about hiring the very best in class people to run those divisions and staff them. Right. Now we're integrated firm with, like I said, 25 people and client clients on three continents. Uh, and it's a blast. Good time. This episode is sponsored by Locally Loved Tallahassee, formerly Socially Loved. I'm excited to have a partner that has the same general goals of sharing great local stories and can benefit from reaching our audience. Their focus is to love where you live by sharing some smart, safe ways to love local. Even if it takes a few extra steps right now, supporting our neighbors is always the right choice. I encourage you to be part of their new Facebook group, Locally Love Tallahassee, focused on celebrating local people and places. Join the thousands, including me, who are already on board and sharing stories about what makes Tallahassee so special. Okay, shifting gears here a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you'd mentioned Stephanie um, earlier, and uh, she's also in the field, right? Director of Communications for Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare. But you're in the same industry. So um, first, I want to just kind of hear your story a little bit, how you met Stephanie and how all that happened. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I was uh, I was single and had started my career and um, I was brought up in a home where there was a certain way that you're expected to carry yourself. Uh, respect of women, you know, respect for everybody, but be a gentleman. Uh, and I was kind of dating on and off and I wasn't going to church and I was just kind of adrift and I was profoundly aware that... Um, an amazing woman in my life is a gift from God. It is something that should be treated with the greatest of respect and that you should be worthy of that. You should live your life in a way that you know, makes you capable of being a great husband to this great, smart, powerful woman. And uh, so I literally 
said, you know, I'm going to start going back to church and get squared away and kind of straight my life out. You know, I'm not going to go out there on weeknights drinking with my buddies and uh, just kind of get my life in order. And Dave, I swear on that Saturday night, I canceled a date with a girl. I don't even remember her name, but I knew it wasn't going anywhere. And I said, hey, I can't go out tonight. I got on my old um, gateway computer and Googled Tallahassee churches and celebration Baptist church came up. I'm not Baptist. Uh, And I thought it sounded cool to celebrate your faith. It had a nice website. It seemed kind of contemporary. Found out when Sunday school was, I put on a suit because I didn't know what they wore. And I walked into Sunday school. (laughs) I opened the door and I walk in and the first person sitting there is Stephanie. Serious as a heart attack. She worked at the other hospital and uh, I, rec- I, I was like, I, I, she works at the hospital. And whenever you're the new guy at church, they're so kind to you. So, um, but right. I didn't want to be the creeper who's like asking girls on a date at, you know, in Sunday school on the first time. But after a few Sundays, it'd be <laughs> maybe not the first Sunday, uh, next right. Sunday, they're definitely, but it was the holiday season. Definitely. And uh, I had a lot of professional engagements to go to, and she had a lot of professional engagements. And I said, Hey, I don't want to ask you on a date, but. I represent the symphony. There's a performance. We want to go. And then I had some other client party and she had three or four. And so we decided we'd be good friends and go to these together. But I fell deeply in love with this girl during this process. And uh, she could not be less interested in me if she tried. She would, we were really just <laughs> friends. And, and I remember once the holidays were over, it was after New Year's, she was leaving. I ran up to her car and she rolled the window down and I said, I've had a great few weeks. And I want to know if you might like to go on a date. And she had this hot little infinity and had just started her career as a young executive. And the window was barely open, you know, and she looked up at me and she goes, we'll see. And that window rolled up and she sped off. And I was like, what in the world? But, uh, <laughs> it, it evidently worked out. We've been married, uh, coming on 14 years, uh, have two great children. And, um, and that's how we met. And she happened to be in communications. I had no idea. Um, so how did you take that? What, what 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 was the vibe you were getting from that? I was I was uh, just kind of beside myself. I you know had gotten along so well and had some you know semi romantic you know moments where we were sweet to one another. And I thought that maybe it had been for both of us moving that direction. And I don't think at that time uh, she'll tell you now she she really liked me. She enjoyed my company, but it wasn't, you know, that early romantic connection for her evidently. Uh, but so you don't think, you don't think she was playing hard to get. You just don't think she was real interested at that moment. Oh, well, she was in remains, uh, just cute as a button. And, and, uh, and I think had, you know, she was single and starting a professional career and, um, you know, I think she was just trying to figure out what she wanted to do. And I wasn't at the top of that list. <laughs> All right. So it got off to a slow start or at least a pause there. So what, how, what happened then? How, how were the romantic fires kindled at some point? Well, so we, we still saw, I still saw her like the next Sunday and um, we would occasionally get together with friends and, you know, that went on for a couple of weeks. And I said, uh, I said, hey, what's you want to grab some dinner or something this Friday? And, and I had backed away from trying to make it a date. I was like, you know what? Maybe we just go out and I don't want to slip in the friend zone, but, you know, see what happens. And she was going to Orlando and uh, I think she had dated a guy who was, uh, I'll probably mess this up, but in the army or 
he was like a sniper. Like my competition was fierce, man. <laughs> a doctor, a dentist, a sniper, a professional baseball player, and me. You know, wow. that is tough. I was driving a you know a Honda Accord with paint peeling off the hood. You know, not making any money. I, you know, a mediocre personality and not very good looks. So that was a scrappy, <laughs> scrappy date. Uh, but anyways, I told her I said, "Hey, look, I." Because she would then call me to go do stuff. And I said, look, I'm, I'm like really attracted to you. And I don't want to be the a jerk. I said, but I'm just going to put myself firmly in the friend lane. And then, you know, when you go to Orlando or if you have another engagement or something and I'm not a part of it, then, you know, that's no big deal. And I said, it's not an ultimatum. I don't, I would never do that, but I just... You know, if you if you want to pursue that path, then then do it. Must be great friends. And then if you, but if you don't, let's 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 not and, and take it to the next level. And I think she called her mom angry and was like, "Tom just gave me an ultimatum." Because I hadn't even met her parents. I mean, I we'd become great you know friends and we're sort of dating. Right. I she admitted it. And uh, and her mom said, "You better not go to Orlando. That Tom's a good guy." And blah. blah. And so I owe my mother in law for eternity. And we like two weeks later, we, we came in from like, uh, we went to church and then we had gone out to brunch together and we pulled in her driveway and I got out and she didn't move. And I looked over and she was just crying and she's like, I'm so in love with you. Like she was just in love. We were engaged within that year and we've been married 14 years and we have an incredible relationship. I have, uh, a ton of respect for her just as a human. I see how she cares for other people and her work ethic and her focus and her dedication to her family and her career and her community. I mean, she, when you wake up next to Stephanie Derzapolsky, yeah, there are high expectations. And so I, I roll out of bed every day next to somebody who's going to go get it and do a great job and honor my last name. And I want to live my life and, and perform as a husband and a father and as a community member in a way that, you know, respects and honors her and, you know, life with her is awesome. That's awesome. So you mentioned your, your children. So you have two boys, right? I do. I do. Yeah. So uh, tell me about them. Well, I'll tell you what, I would, there's another chapter in my life. I was uh, married as a young sailor and uh, you graduate boot camp and they hang you a sea bag with all your gear in it. And then eventually a few months later, they hand you a wife. And every young enlisted guy somehow ends up married. And, uh, and I was not immune to that. So <clears throat> when I was 20 and 21, I was married and um, got married first, thought I was doing the right thing. And, you know, then we started a family. So I have an amazing daughter. Her name is Matt. Okay. And uh-huh. uh, she's going to be 24 soon. And uh, she's married and I have a great son-in-law. And I am a grandfather. I have the nice. granddaughter on on the planet. And I know there's other grandpas out there who said that can't be because they do, but I do actually. And uh, her name is Georgia. So th- that's a very important part of my life. Where do they live? Well, they um, had recently lived just outside of Cairo. Uh, you know, she spent uh, her elementary years with mom. And then when she got into medical, middle school, mom sent her to me. I'd always wanted okay. her to live with me. I love her very much. And her mom's like, you know what? Middle school is a perfect time to send a teenage <laughs> girl to Tom. And yeah. uh, she went to Mont for middle school and then uh, in, in Lincoln High School and grew up around here. Uh, she married her boyfriend from sixth grade. They fell in love in sixth grade. Wow. Dated 
throughout high school. They broke up a few times like kids do. Um, but they are a great couple. So you basically got to do the parenting thing in two phases, right? Twice. Yeah. When Thomas right? came home from the hospital, I had a 13 year old daughter built in babysitter. It's kind of how we joke about it. But, uh, I remember being a young man, uh, loving Madison, um, probably taking parenting too seriously. I worried a lot. And I think round two, uh, with Thomas and gray was so cool because not only was I older, you know, my mid thirties, but, but just much more relaxed. You know, I've yeah. been, 13 years of Madison, I understood the investment early in her early childhood development, her health, and I probably worried about it too much. And and so with Thomas and Gray, it, you know, I really didn't take for granted how quickly they um, grow out of being a toddler and a little boy right. into a young man in elementary school. And you really, I've really probably focused more on embracing those moments and sitting longer and listening to their very long stories sometimes because I know... <laughs> those past so yep and how old are they now uh thomas is 10 and uh gray's seven and a half and uh okay first grade and fourth grade and what what do they enjoy doing in normal circumstances again we're recording this during a a lockdown but uh <laughs> what do they normally enjoy you know life for these dudes uh has not changed much thomas uh, loves all things sports. When it's football season, he wants to throw football in the front yard or down at Winter Park. I call him my golden retriever. Like the kid will go <laughs> chase the ball until he has a stroke or just is starving to death. He, there's no, he's full throttle. Right. Um, so he loves um, all things uh, military and all things sporting. Like he's constantly playing Navy SEALs or acting like he's an Army Ranger, running around the house with toy guns and setting up camps. Uh, <laughs> You're very good at it, by the way. Um, yeah. And then Gray, too, likes all those things, but he's far more creative. Um, he will go all throughout the yard and gather sticks and build something or spend hours collecting rocks and smashing them with a hammer to see what's on the inside because sometimes <laughs> they're different minerals. And they're both actually very good boys. They uh, are respectful. They work hard in school uh, and you know, they, they're really no trouble at all. They are, I was just about to say they're perfectly healthy. They are. However, just a year ago, we found out my youngest son, Gray has type one diabetes. Uh, we don't have a history of it. It, uh, kind of caught us out of the blue and it has been life changing in every possible way. Uh, but he's incredible. It's amazing that even in that kind of news that was, you know, kind of rocked our world, it revealed a strength that Gray didn't have, that I didn't know Gray had. Thomas was always tackling and football and gung ho and military, and Gray was more independent, but played probably more gentle. Uh, but he's he's got fierce strength. He takes his shots. He gets his finger poked ten times a day. Gets shots four or five right. times a day. Has to put these medical devices on that monitor his glucose. And he's just so brave and so cool. And on the flip side, Big Brother, who's so tough and rough and tumble. It has revealed incredible compassion and patience yeah. and caring. And I'm like, you know, that's very cool. Yeah. Being a person of faith, I look at what am I supposed to, why does my son have diabetes? What is being revealed to me? What am I supposed to do with this? How do I, what good can be here? And, and you look for it, you have to look for it hard sometimes, but you know, I've seen two awesome sides of my sons that I didn't even know they had. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned, 
you've mentioned um, faith a couple times in our conversation. So I just want to ask you about the role that faith plays in your life, how that impacts the the lens at which you view the world and, um, you know, what that means to you and your family. Yeah. The, um, I, if you ask my employees, they'll tell you, hey, what are Tom's priorities? And and it's God, family, work, and everything else. And um, at a very kind of surface level, you know, that is how I tend to look at things. When I, if I'm confronted with a big issue or a conflict or a decision, and it's imperfect, there are times that I have to travel and I work very late uh, and I'm not able to be home with family, but I'm doing that for family. You know, my faith in, as a Christian and looking at the life of Jesus, um, is, is not one uh, that causes me to look at others differently um, or down at others. I think uh, when you examine the life of Jesus, if you want to model that life, you see somebody who was a very patient, caring, and loving person who looked after the needs of others, who was thoughtful in his approach, who was slow to anger. In the religion of Christianity, I think you find that there's some incredible leadership qualities with regard to, to honesty and patience and um, perseverance and, you know, understanding that there's something bigger than you that's directing things. You don't get self-absorbed. And if you believe that you were put here for a reason, that you were created by someone, a God who loves you and cares about you and gave you skills and talents, and that you have a responsibility to use those to serve others. That's awesome. It's also a good segue when you're talking about service. Um, in 2018, you were part of a group that was named by the Tallahassee Democrat as Person of the Year for your response to Hurricane Michael, both immediately after the storm and ongoing efforts to help that area survive and then heal. So first, congratulations. That's a huge honor. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On social media, you know, you were everywhere after the storm. You took on a huge responsibility. So a couple questions related to that. One is why you got so involved and what was your connection to the area? And uh, secondly, did you did you have any idea when you started volunteering for this that it would just consume your life for such a, a long period of time? You know, it's funny to be living in a, during a time like we are right now with another crisis. Uh, right. Because, you know, then like now, we, I didn't know what it involved or how long it would be. The, the quick story is that Stephanie and I had been in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia the weekend before, and she was going to be in Seattle for a medical conference. Um, and I was coming back to get, you know take care of the boys and school and all the stuff that we do. We knew there was a storm like everybody is kind of kicking around out there. But, yeah, we're going to we're Floridians, right? Let's see what happens. We'll get ready. Yeah. I always have a ready supply. So. Storm hit. I got the boys out of Dodge, took them to Gainesville to be with family, and I serve on the Red Cross board. So I stayed to, again, just kind of be available to my neighbors and then to fulfill any role I had in the Red Cross. And that's, you know, it struck during the daytime. So when things kind of, it moved into the evening, the next day I drove around and I realized that this was incredible. I mean, the, the level of destruction, even in Tallahassee and the trees down on Thomasville Road. So Stephanie was stuck in Seattle and uh, I cleaned up our yard and we helped some neighbors and about, I don't know, 36 hours after the storm, Steph was home and I was raking our neighbor's yard. And she said, Tom, my mom is a widow and is alone in Bluntstown. And we hadn't really heard from them like to the West an occasional text. Right. Uh, and I remember when it was like, 
the words were bad here. We're okay. We're alive. Like from different, but what I didn't realize was it's not they were super busy. It's there was such limited cellular service. You had to drive and it took forever to get into any town physically to right. get maybe a bar to eke out any kind of message. There was no email. And uh, so the, so I said, okay, okay, let's, you're right. Let's go. We threw stuff in my truck, got on I-10 and within, you know, 15 minutes of driving, I said, man, a tornado must have shot through this part because all the trees were down except right. it just never ended. And yeah. it, the, the forest was devastated all the way through Greensboro and Bristol and, uh, and into Blountstown. And it was just, uh, I've been in Bosnia and Albania and around the world as a sailor in some bad areas, uh, as a Navy corpsman. And I told Steph, I was like, this looks like a bomb blew up here. And when we pulled into Blountstown, it looked to me just like towns I was in that were war zones that had been the center of battles. I could not believe it. And we eventually made it there. It took care of our family. And that night, my uh, brother-in-law's the the sheriff, the uh, police chief in Blountstown, and my other okay. brother-in-law's the lieutenant in the Higher Patrol, and they were both in the OC. And they said, "Tom, will you come to the briefing at seven o'clock? I think we need your help." And I said, whatever, man, absolutely. So I go in and they needed somebody to help coordinate volunteers and donations because they were starting to roll in. I, I said, give me a minute. And I went outside the OC and I had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. Zero. But I sat on these steps and I just said a quick prayer. And I said, Lord, I don't know why I'm here. And I don't know that I have the skills to do what's needed. Uh, but guide me and surround me with people who do. And I went home that evening and I told Steph, hey, we're going to try and stand up a donation center that will get food out to all the people. The Red Cross was running a shelter and doing a superb job at the high school, but there was nothing else. And people right. were devastated. And I just, as a communication guy, I was like, I'm going to get on Facebook and do a Facebook Live video and tell people that it's safe here. The roads are open and this is the very specific location very specifically what we need. And Dave, that video immediately went viral and yeah. had, I mean, tens of thousands of shares and hundreds of thousands of views. And we had people from, I always mess this number because I count it like three times, but something like 26 states. And so wow. I, found, I found south of town, I found an old car dealership. And in the back where they would do maintenance in the car, there's an old kind of like a Chevy dealer in the backs where you get your oil change or whatever. Yeah. And it was, right. a band and I called the owner. I said, Hey, can you, can I use that big, it had a huge driveway area. People can pull in and semis. And he said, Hey, it's open. Use it. Everyone was so helpful. Everyone I asked just said, yes. I mean, from that guy to like a million other people. And, uh, that very next day I, I spray painted a sign and put it by the road. It said donations here with an arrow. Stephanie pulled up and kind of laughed and said, this place is a dump. There's not a dump, <laughs> but it was abandoned. You know, there was a business in the yeah. front, but like the sign, right. it was a blown over piece of wood and I spray pen it badly. She goes, Tom, no one's going to come here. And an hour or two later, someone rolled in from Georgia and in Texas and Louisiana and all the Carolinas and Kentucky and Oklahoma. And we literally had people coming in and dropping off food, and horse trailers, trucks, the trunks of their car. Um, and I drove around the community and set up these little, I didn't set them up, forgive me. There were little tiny in some rural, like not even a blinking light in a place like Clarksville on highway 20. 
there was a little church that had opened their doors. And so I arranged for them to come to my central location to get the supplies they need, carry them back so they'd be close to the people. Right. It was very important to me that the donations that people gave got to the people very, very quickly and got them as close to the people as possible, wherever they were in this rural community. And we had so much that we sent food to Panama City, Gadsden County, Jackson County. We kind of became the hub for the rural devastation because Mexico Beach and Panama City were in the news. But, you know, CNN doesn't even know where Blountstown is. And right. uh, Chattahoochee or Clarksville or any of those places that we know about here in North Florida. So it was... Um, unbelievably successful. It went on for many weeks uh, from that date in October, probably up into December. And then we kind of handed the reins over once a local nonprofit was, you know, people were taking care of their own house and trying to survive. So how they to care for others. Sure. Once those organizations kind of stood up and a church was back in business and a local, you know, thrift store was back in business, then they absorbed our responsibility and carry on for many months. But we didn't mean to do it. We uh, didn't have a plan. I think that it's just one of those things where you're in the right place at the right time. And, and then all the right people showed up. Tallahassee, this community showed up like the chamber of commerce and all the staff showed up with vans um, and what moving, uh, Doggone, I started naming them. I'm going to forget people now. <laughs> That's Just a dangerous path. To let go down. me say everybody that I know in Tallahassee yeah. brought their van, their truck, a trailer, or business to Blondstown um, at some point and served. And uh, that mission continues today, by the way. There's an organization my younger sister started called Mission 850. I think it's mission850.com or .org, but they are every month going into the panhandle and serving the elderly and people that are still damaged from the hurricane. And uh, right. if you want to go volunteer, you can just sign up there and they'll set up a job job that fits your need. So if you don't have a skill, but maybe you can paint, we gotcha. If you can't paint, but you can pick up trash, we gotcha. Yeah. Well, we're, we're back in the middle of another situation, which is unprecedented, much, much different than even recovery from a hurricane in that, <laughs> We can't see what we're fighting. Everyone's in the same ballpark and we don't know when it's going to end. In fact, you, you made them, your family made the news because you were on the, on a plane headed to Ireland when the travel ban to Europe was announced literally while you were on the tarmac. Is that right? We were uh, taking the family to Ireland for spring break and uh, we boarded our flight. We love Tallahassee. We love flying out of Tallahassee's airport and we were in New York city at JFK and boarded the flight. I get the boys set up on their earphones to watch a movie and we push away from the gate and we're sitting there on the tarmac about to move on to the runway and we're waiting and we're waiting. And, you know, once that part of the trip begins, you're just into your movie and whether you're in the area or taxiing, who cares? Um, right. But I wasn't aware, like, what's going on? Why is there a delay? And then a guy a few rows back, well, I knew he stood up because I turned around. But I, didn't, I heard him. He's like, I'm getting off. And he stood up and I, he was opening the, the overhead. And, you know, once you move away and they shut the day, I mean, the flat attendants are sitting down and putting their seatbelts yeah. on. It's like, what the heck? And uh, I was sitting on the aisle and he was going to come down my aisle and was kind of being rambunctious. And I was like, this guy's nuts because he was very adamant and vocal about getting off the plane. And yeah. I unbuckled my seatbelt and I was like, 
I think a bunch Dude. of people might have to tackle this guy if he tries to open the door. Like this. Right. And so I'm buckling my seatbelt and I was sitting there watching him and he went by me and this flight attendants came forward and this is sir, sit down. They're very stern. Like you must sit down. And then other people's phones started to go off. I, I heard a ding ding or two and I looked around and everybody's holding their phones and the president was speaking from the Oval Office or had just finished. And said, there's a travel ban on European flights returning starting Friday. And so he's saying, I can't get stuck in Europe. And and captain came over and said, ladies and gentlemen, there's been an announcement from the White House, something with regard to European travel. We're going to stand here for a second. You must sit down until we figure out what's going on. So everybody sat down. The captain came out to the cabin and walked to each section and said, I'm captain, whatever. We are going to go back to the gate until we find out what is going on. Be calm. Everything's okay. We're not going to Europe right now. Um, and he pulled in and he said, we don't have any news except that indeed Friday at midnight, um, except for Great Britain. And we're going into Dublin, not Belfast. Belfast is a part of the UK. But right. uh, except for that, no flights. And the president's message was particularly frustrating. And he, as a communications professional, he makes me a little yeah. insane because... Wasn't super clear about it. Yeah. Flights from Europe, not American citizens can come back. None of that, right? Right. So yeah. I woke up Stephanie during this and she's like, what is going on? I said, oh, flights to Europe are canceled. We're trying to figure it out. I'm on my phone. That's all we see is what he said. There's no details. B- being that Gray is uh, diabetic, we were traveling with insulin. We were going to be gone about probably 10 days. So we bought, you know, 20 days worth of supplies just in case, like, I don't know, you get sure. in an airport or there's weather. And, but we did not have enough insulin supplies to like really get stuck out of the country. And Stephanie, you know, if this was accelerating and going to become a big issue, needed to get back to TMH and fulfill her role as, you know, chief communication officer. And so we're standing, we're just sitting in the plane and then we had the captain said, you have three minutes to decide whether you'd like to get off. Um, or continue to Ireland. And so we quickly weighed things and said, we got to get off this plane. And we got off and then uh, we're stuck in New York for three days. We actually had a great time in New York, but we did it in a very kind of non-traditional way. We rented bikes and rode through Central Park. We were able to go on the top of the Empire State Building. We took the Staten Island Ferry across so that we could see the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Um, restaurants were still open. We had no problem getting a seat. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, you know, at, honestly, after 48 hours when everything you do in New York is closed. The attraction of looking at the big buildings and, you know, stuff like that yeah. works off and we uh, came home. Yeah, time to come home. Yeah. All right, well, this podcast is named How I Got Here and we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here will be for you three to five years from now? Well, it's interesting you asked that question during a pandemic because I've always... Uh, because of Stephanie and I's schedule, we have a, a nanny that helps us with the boys and she picks them up from school and comes home and does homework and does a few things to help manage our household. And I told, that's made me uneasy for the longest time that that was necessary. Like, that's my job. That's your job, Steph. Like, why do we, we have important roles to play, but is there anything more important than that? And remember I say, God, family, work, everything else. I have like right. a pinch hitter in here. And uh, so I was struggling with how to get off work. I told my business partner, Kelly, last fall, I said, you know, I'd really like to find a way to manage my schedule so that I could uh, cut out of here at three. And imagine this, an advertising agency is supposed to work to like seven or eight every night. So like, leave at three, what if clients need you? And uh, 
I didn't, I, I just, I never pulled it off. Like one time I picked him up early and told the nanny I got him and came home and did homework. But I can tell you that we mentioned how experiences transform your perspective. Yeah. Uh, when we get back to normal life, I'm picking my kids up from school and I'm going to come home and get them started on their homework and spend time with them. I'll still work on my company. I'll take a conference call. I'll go into my office at home and complete emails or follow up. Uh, but this has showed me that when you're forced to be at home and, and manage your children all day and all their schoolwork, not just homework, and all of the activities of the household, in particular with a wife who is you know, handling communications for our region's biggest hospital during a healthcare crisis and is consumed by that, and she needs to be. She's very supportive of me. I'm supportive of her. Neither yeah. one of us is doing more or less at home. It's I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking credit where it isn't due. She's in there too. Um, but I guarantee you, when I go back to Val Stern, I will pick up my boys in the afternoon and help them with their homework. I wake up very early every day. I'm, I'm usually working out or working on behalf of clients at five or five or so in the morning, maybe earlier. Um, yeah. and honest to God, there's an old Navy commercial that said we get more done before 9 a.m. than most people get done all day. In my case, that is true. I mean, yeah. I'll outwork anybody, um, and but most of it's going to happen between probably five and nine, and then the rest of the day gets wiped out by conference calls and sure. but stuff. I'm definitely, definitely going to look at how we live our life. That was Tom Derzapolsky. If we ever do resume some form of a normal work schedule, I have no doubt that Tom will indeed do his best to pick up his boys and spend the late afternoon hours helping with homework. And anyone who thinks that will be easier than work does not remember much about algebra. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.